Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Cardios. Have you dined with us before? No, I haven't. Well, we do things a little differently here. First, try this amuse-bouche. Compliments of the chef. It's delicious. What is it? It's pork belly refried in cheese lard served over a puree of beta blockers. Beta blockers? You got it. At Cardio's, we serve foods that would ordinarily contribute to your hasty demise, but here we put the prescription medication right in the dish. Well, my compliments to the chef. Oh, he's in the hospital, but I'll pass it along to the nursing staff. Now, for a starter, may I recommend the Sicilian cheese fries drizzled with a Coumadin reduction? The 2011 Coumadin? A very good year at Bristol-Myers Squibb. And perhaps for your entree, the sirloin fried in butter with buffalo mozzarella and bacon alfredo. I didn't hear a medicine in that one. Oh, no. We just defibrillate you after that one. Hmm. Will I be in any mood for dessert? Most people are. My favorite is a tiramisu with fresh market statin. Oh, can I get the palm oil uh, on the side? Sure, if you like, and perhaps you'd also enjoy the show on heart health. Although it may be too late. And now he takes a baby aspirin every day, even if he has to pry it out of the baby's hand. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, some of those babies really cry when I take their aspirin away, too. My, my, my feeling is they don't need it as much as I do. You know, they've got their whole lives ahead of them. I'm clinging to mine. So, uh, yes, and it's never too late to start thinking about your heart, although it would be good if you thought about your heart really early, as I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. I mean, this is this amazing thing that you have in your body uh, that beats 35 million times a day uh, and, you know, I mean, pumps three super techers full of, of, of blood in your lifetime. And what do we do with it? Well, we put a lot of crap in it that's not really very good for us. Uh, we don't take very good care of it. Uh, and then one day we realize that maybe we should have thought about this differently. So uh, it is – I mean I guess there's a more romantic and scientific way of saying that than I just did. But it is uh, February. That's Heart Awareness Month. Again, there's only really one month when we're aware <laughs> – this thing that keeps us alive the other 11 months of the year. But uh, we do want to talk to you uh, about it, about how to take care of it, uh, and then what to do when it uh, stops working uh, as well as it could. Uh, we have a great lineup of guests here for you. Uh, Dr. Anita Kelsey is a cardiologist and director of the Women's Heart Program at St. Francis Hospital right across the street from us. Uh, Cynthia Williams is a resident of Hartford who is recovering from open heart surgery. And Peter Canning is a paramedic and EMS coordinator at John Dempsey Hospital. He's the author of four books, including Paramedic on the front lines of medicine. A little bit later, too, we're going to be talking about heart research, uh, and we'll be talking to Nihar Desai, an assistant professor of medicine in the cardiovascular medicine section at the Yale School of Medicine, an investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. There's some interesting stuff going on with research and about the fact that a lot of research doesn't really make it to the shelves. You never really find out about it uh, because the results are not published, and this is also causing a, a whole new wave of thinking about the design of studies. Anyway, that is to come. Uh, right now, we want to bring you right up to date uh, on what's going on with uh, everybody's heart, especially yours. Uh, so um, maybe just a, the place to begin is uh, Dr. Anita Kelsey. Maybe kind of give us a, an overall sense. Uh, we, we don't want to have heart attacks. We don't want to die of cardiovascular uh, disease. Uh, so what's our best bet? So I, I think our best bet is to 
learn what the things you can do personally to prevent heart disease are. Find out what your numbers are. That's the, you know, Know Your Numbers campaign of the American Heart Association and the Go Red movement to alert women about the importance of recognizing heart disease and preventing it. And so you know your numbers. Know your blood pressure number, your blood sugar number, your cholesterol numbers. Know about your family history. Know if it puts you at risk. And certainly know that you shouldn't be smoking. And know the amount of activity you should be doing. So all of these risk factors contribute to heart disease. And uh, I haven't met anyone who can't make some change in their life to reduce their individual risk, regardless of what their starting point is. Yeah, maybe you could amplify that a little bit, because I think that's probably true that most people think, oh, I'm already doing a pretty good job right now. What, what tend to be blind spots? Uh, I, there are blind spots everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, for instance, so we've had this women's heart program at St. Francis, and we go out to the community and educate people. And I say, so we've seen 10,000 women since 2006. And I would say that I haven't met one woman who couldn't do something to reduce her risk. And some people, it's a pretty significant change, maybe a significant change in weight, reducing their weight to a heart-healthy weight, body mass index less than 25, or getting their blood pressure under better control by diet, exercise, and taking medication daily, you know, to 120 over 80 for the ideal blood pressure. Um, but even women who are maybe doing a lot of those things and aren't smoking and know their cholesterol numbers and have a, a good handle on these risk factors, maybe not active enough or or very commonly are under a lot of stress and aren't doing anything to reduce stress. And stress as a risk factor for heart disease is more important in women than men. There's a type of heart attack that happens without any blockages in the coronary arteries. And it's called uh, heartbreak syndrome, it's called commonly. Its technical name is Takasubu cardiomyopathy. But this type of heart attack that happens only because of stress happens 9 out of 10 times to women and uh, only 1 out of 10 times to men. So women hold a lot of stress that affects their heart adversely in a lot of different ways. It can also cause increasing heart rate, increasing blood pressure, and a panic sensation that can cause chest discomfort that exactly mimics a heart attack. And so women need to know what their stress level is. The hard part about that is we don't have a scientific measure for stress that's very accurate because two individuals can see the exact same stressors in their lives and have a completely different response to those stressors. So measuring stress is hard. So the only person that knows if someone's under stress is you. You know if you're under stress and you have to do something about it. Remove yourself from the stressors or change the way you react to stress with, I recommend exercise because, of course, exercise reduces all the other risk factors for heart disease. Let me ask you something about that, too, because there is a couple of things come together in that. Um, when people exercise these days, uh, if they go to a gym, they're very likely to get a piece of heart information. I don't know how useful it is, but an awful lot of people are exercising in gyms and putting their hands on sensors that give them a heart rate. Um, and they can see how the heart rate fluctuates over the time they exercise. They can try to stabilize it. Um, as you can probably tell I do all those things. But I mean, it's, but I also asked a cardi my cardiologist one time. I said, "How much? How significant is that information?" He went, "Meh." Uh, so, but what's your take on that? So, um, I know that 
very often those heart rate monitors are not accurate. So you can mm-hmm. put your hand on and get a completely different number than your true heart rate. Right. But I think they're very useful in pushing people a little farther in their exercise, right? So we all get on the treadmill and we exercise. But if we know a goal heart rate to push ourselves to, and if we've plateaued, uh, so my favorite is I plateau in the 120s, and I can push myself harder, but I'm not increasing my heart rate too much until I really push myself hard. So if so I you set... So should, you should do that, right? Well, you, you I'm, should... I'm I'm like, if my heart rate goes up too fast, I think, whoa, this isn't so good. So you should be doing aerobic exercise that increases your heart rate to, I tell people not to pay attention to the heart rate number when they first start exercising. Mm-hmm. I'm saying that it's a, it's potentially helpful in pushing you to exercise a little harder and get to a higher fitness level. Mm-hmm. But in general, I think that people should be getting on a treadmill or walking on the street or walking in a mall and uh, exerting themselves a little bit so they can still talk in a complete sentence, mm-hmm. but they're, they're not sauntering. They're not uh, relaxed and moving very slowly because you're not going to increase your heart rate at all doing that if you're walking very slowly. And uh, you're not going to get the cardiovascular benefit. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about symptoms here, uh, how to know that maybe you're starting to have a problem. So, uh, Cynthia, how did you... Well, I probably your first time around here, you didn't necessarily recognize the symptoms you were having. As you look back, how might you have known that you had a problem? I think one of the first things that I noticed, and I never would have related it to my heart, and because I'm, I've heard that women don't really have a lot of signs when they're going to have a heart attack, things like that. But what was happening to me was I was extremely tired. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the tiredness became a lot more than usual. Because sometimes I get a little tired. I do have um, sleep apnea. So I make sure I was using the machine during that time. But yet I was still very, very tired. It was, And I knew something was wrong because then I started feeling strange mm-hmm. in the mornings. When I would get up, I felt strange. And so I began to say to myself that something's wrong. I didn't know what it was. But I still, in and of myself, would have never related it to my heart. But I knew something was wrong. So at this time is when I called my doctor. Um, I want to come back to that uh, because uh, with Anita in just a second. But, I mean, Peter, w- w- there's sort of a dilemma here, right, which is there are a lot of things that could feel like heart attacks. I mean, Anita just talked about one of them. Um, you know, you've, uh, panic and, and anxiety can sometimes mimic this, the exact symptoms for so other people as a heart attack. If every time I felt strange, to use uh, Cynthia's term, uh, I called for you guys to come get me, uh, I'd be spending most of my time in an ambulance. So, I mean, it, it's a problem for people. They listen to a show like this, they might hear two or three things that sound symptomatic for them. But once again, you can't be calling 911 every day. Well, that's that's true. You can't call for everything, but it's better to err on the side of calling than not. I can't tell you the number of times that I have responded to somebody in cardiac arrest. Mm-hmm. Cardiac arrest is compared to a heart attack. A heart attack is you're feeling pain, your heart is in trouble. Cardiac arrest is when your heart stopped and you're not breathing. Mm-hmm. The number of times I've gone to a house where the person's in cardiac arrest and I find out that earlier in the day they were feeling the chest pain. Mm-hmm. There was one day I, I work on an ambulance, so they post us at strategic locations. I was parked at one of our locations within sight of the house that I went to in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. In the morning, it was fairly slow. Nothing was going on. This guy, when he started feeling chest pain, could have looked out the window and seen me and mm-hmm. called. He didn't call you know, until his wife found him later in the mm-hmm. afternoon when he collapsed, and it was, by then it was too late. 
Um, I, I gather also that sometimes you respond for a different kind of call and find out that it's really a hard thing. Didn't you have a guy who fainted and broke? Yeah, yeah. Tell, just, tell that story. Just recently, um, we got called for an unknown. We got there a man, uh, 47 years old, no other history in the past, had uh, fainted, fallen, and and broken his nose. And uh, so, you know, we checked him out to see if he had any neck or back pain from the fall. But because syncope or, or collapsing is one of the possible symptoms, we put him on our cardiac monitor. And no sooner had I put him on that monitor than I recognized a certain pattern uh, that showed that he was having a heart attack. And uh, thanks to the efforts of people at St. Fran, um, uh, UConn, Hartford, and the American Heart Association Mission Lifeline, we've been doing a lot of training for paramedics. So now... What they can do, they can recognize a heart attack in the patient's bedroom. They can get on the phone, call the hospital, activate the cardiac cath lab, which is what we did in this case. So this guy, within an hour, was on the cardiac cath lab table. He had a blockage of his artery, and it was being cleared. Years ago, we wouldn't probably have not, you know, we wouldn't have the 12-lead EKG. Excuse me, EKGs, we wouldn't have recognized it was a heart attack, and it would have taken much longer for him to have uh, gotten his artery cleared. And, and to that point, I'm going to come back to Anita in just, just a second. To that point, like I live, uh, I, li- I live very close to here, which means I live very close to St. Francis. But if I'm starting to have uh, symptoms, you want me to call 911, try not get, At, my, get my butt over to the hospital. Absolutely, call 911. Yeah. Um, because, as I said, the paramedic brings the emergency department to the patient's side. So if it's 3 in the morning and you're having chest pain, I can, from your bedroom, start treating you, and I can activate the cardiac cath lab. Mm-hmm. Getting the, at, at 3 in the morning, the cardiac interventionist is home in bed. In the old days, you, you should, you'd go to the hospital. The nurse would do an EKG, give it to the doctor. The doctor would look at it. The doctor would call the cardiologist. The cardiologist would come down and go, oh, my goodness, this person's having a heart attack. And then they'd wake up the interventionist. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as I get to your house, we can wake him up. So he's actually at the hospital by the time we get there with the patient. Yeah, and we, we want to talk about more, more about that as we go along here. There have been just enormous changes at a lot of hospitals uh, in, in ways that these kinds of emergencies are handled. But, Anita, before we do that, I want to come back to, you know, for a lot of people, once again, it is that question of how do you sort out your symptoms? You know, Cynthia talked about feeling strange. Um, you know, you talked about uh, an anxiety attack that can feel and act an awful lot like a heart attack. So how do people sort all this out? So uh, the typical presentation of a heart attack is pressure in the middle of the chest that radiates down the left arm, comes up to the jaw, comes on with exertion, relieved by rest. And 9 out of 10 times, a man having a heart attack has that symptom. Mm. But only 6 out of 10 times, a woman having a heart attack has that symptom. So women are, like Cynthia said, uh, very correctly, that they're much more commonly going to have other symptoms. So we have a lot of other symptoms. So how do you know it's your heart, right? Cynthia, you were good enough to pay attention to it and, and get in. If you have a new symptom for you that feels important and significant, you should get it checked out, period, across the board. I usually say between your nose and your navel, if you have any symptoms in there that seem to bother you. But the more common symptoms are things like shortness of breath, a racing feeling for your heart, aches in other part of your back or chest or both of your arms. Those are the more common symptoms. For women, fatigue is a very common symptom. So Cynthia's fatigue is a common symptom for women. 
How many things show up in, in just a checkup? For example, I get a, have an annual physical every year. I know there are debates about whether how valuable that is. But my doctor, uh, I always have an EKG. They give you an EKG. I mean, how many things will show up that way? How many things might still be masked? So if you're not having the symptom when the doctors examine you and doing the EKG, mm-hmm. you're not going to have changes on your exam or on the EKG. And you can have a pretty tight blockage in an artery and at rest not have any problem from that because even a small amount of blood flow is enough when you're at rest. But mm-hmm. when you exert yourself, your heart's demanding more blood flow and that blockage is more significant. So things like a stress test are more likely to elicit you know, blockages before they're causing the heart attack. But I think if you pay attention to your symptoms, and this is more uh, the sense of preventing your own heart disease, Mm -hmm. you need to learn all those other things to prevent it, but you also need to be aware of your symptoms. And if it's new for you, you should tell someone. And with if you're having the symptom with a good EKG, with a good history and a physical exam, we can tell the vast majority of the time if someone's having a heart attack. You know, this is also, I have so many questions here, but um, it seems as though um, this is an argument also for the integrative medicine component that, that St. Francis and so many other hospitals have. Because first of all, if you can control your anxiety through oh, integrative okay. medicine things, then you know, oh, this is a heart attack. Or you're more likely to know this is a heart attack, not your anxiety. And, and in general, it seems as though everything you're talking about in terms of body awareness can be educated through some of the integrative medicine practices. And the integrative medicine practices can help reduce your stress, reduce your blood pressure. They can help you achieve other goals like reducing body weight and uh, encouraging you to become more active. You know, depression, post-heart attack depression is very significant. And integrative medicine techniques to help reduce Mm. depression also help reduce the likelihood of having a heart attack. Um, Cynthia, uh, maybe you could give us more of a, a sense of what your your journey is. We have mentioned that you are um, uh, uh, that you've had heart surgery. Tell us what happened to you. Well, it kind of started out again. I was feeling the feeling strange, feeling unusual. And when I look now after listening to you, um, I can look back and see a lot of things that was going on that now I can relate to because I was having the um, shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having some of those things, so. Again, because this was new, I never related it to my heart or having a heart attack um, because I was such an active person, mm-hmm. um, constantly on the go. But when I was feeling extremely tired, um, I finally called my cardiologist and I was telling him um, about my tiredness and he set up a, a stress test. Mm-hmm. We did a stress test and from the stress test, he found a blockage. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, we then did a, he wanted to look further into it, so we had an aneogram mm-hmm. done. Um, during that time, they did see um, a blockage there. They were going to put in stents, but um, at that time, he said, because of the location of it, they weren't able to put in a stent. So they, um, the group of doctors got together, and I think immediately many of them said, "Let's, she needs to have open-heart surgery. My doctor wanted to be sure. So we were going to have a second aneogram. Well, prior to that, um, having the second aneogram, he told me that if I felt any kind of discomfort, any chest tightening, anything like that, just go to the emergency room immediately. Well, I had just the first aneogram done maybe that Friday. That Tuesday, I started feeling chest tightness. Mm. Um, and I was going to go home, but I said, no, I think I better just go check this Good. out. So I did. They ended up keeping me. The following day, I had the second aneogram. Mm. While I was on the table there, he told me then that he saw three blockages. And he was actually going in to um, put in a wire where the blockage was to see what the blood flow was, 
but he told me even then while I was on the table that it was just too dangerous to do it and he informed me then that I actually needed to have um, open heart surgery. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the process, you know, that all got started. I had the surgery actually two days later, so there wasn't a long time for me to think about it. Um, so I had to, he actually came to my room the next day and told me that I had two choices. Mm. He said, one, we can do nothing and you will have a heart attack. Or sec, we can do the surgery and you'll probably feel much better than you do right now. So we had the surgery and um, about a month ago, I was told that between the time I had the surgery, which was in October, October 9th, and November, that I also had a heart attack, Aww. which I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of said, well, where was I when I had this heart attack? And they kind of explained to me that it was like a silent one. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anything about it. Um, but I was sharing with Peter um, that there was a day, which I don't know if this could have been the time when the heart attack Took, took place while I was home and I was having some sweats I got really hot <laughs> heart was beating tremendously fast and I was going to call 911 but I just kind of rested and it went away so it never was anything that I pursued so I'm just assuming that it could have been during that time because it was about the time frame that they were saying that I probably had a silent heart attack hmm. um, we're going to take a break here pretty soon but Peter there's so many other aspects to this. And some of them are like small, little logistical questions. I mean, nobody really thinks, oh, one of these days I'm going to have a heart emergency. I'm going to need to call 911. Uh, and as a result, a lot of times when you're arriving looking for the person who has a heart attack, uh, it isn't as easy to find them or get to them as it could possibly be. Talk about some of the just, I mean, almost silly sounding obstacles to that. Yeah, well, uh, particularly at night, you're driving down the street. And if the house isn't well lit, you might not see it. It's harder to see the number on the house. Even during the day sometimes, uh, you know, they may have a sort of esoteric number on the house that you can't see. You know, a big, if we're being sent to 21 Main Street, we want to see a big 21 there. If uh, your house is, has a, you know, a back door, we want to know that the back door is the place to go to. Um, it's also important to have, if, if you have enough people there, to have somebody you know, opening the door and waving us down. A couple of years ago on, on uh, Garden Street in Hartford, we got called for a, a person in distress. Uh, we got there, we arrived, and the door at the apartment building was locked at the basement, And it, I mean at the, at the entryway. It took us 10 minutes to get into the place. We got up there, the woman was in cardiac arrest. We were able to get her back, but unfortunately, she suffered a brain injury from being without oxygen so long, and she lives permanently in a nursing home now. Had somebody been down there to have that door open for us, that could have been a completely different outcome. Mm. All right. So, um, so much to think about. A, a lot of food for thought here today. We're talking, uh, speaking of food, we might talk a little bit about food if we have time. Uh, but uh, we're going to take a little break right now. We're talking about heart health and heart awareness. If you want to call us at 860-275-7266. We're live here in the afternoon. 860-275-7266 or online. You may tweet us at WNPR. Colin. Oh, 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 oh.
Hi, we're talking about how to take care of your heart and then what to do when maybe you didn't take such good care of it or even though you did because of other risk factors that were out of your control, uh, things go wrong with your heart. Um, We haven't talked too much about CPR and other things that can be used uh, to get your heart back going again after this. And so, uh, first of all, let me uh, remind you who our guests are. Dr. Indina Kelsey, cardiologist and director of the Women's Heart Program at St. Francis. Cynthia Williams, resident of Hartford who is recovering from fairly recent open heart surgery. Uh, And Peter Canning, paramedic an EMS coordinator of John Dempsey Hospital, the author of four books, including Paramedic, On the Front Lines of Medicine. He writes Paramedic blog, Street Watch, at www.medicscribe.com. We'll put that up on our website, too, so you can look it up there. But So, um, Peter, um, there is, I think, in, in the little kitchenette on this floor, some kind of uh, AED, some kind of little def- defibrillator. Uh, and we do uh, have a nurse here, our producer, Betsy Kaplan, uh, and some other people have had some training. So, But I also have this sense that that actually Josh Nalea, one of our other producers, was trained on it. He said that he was discovering that the placement even, you know, if you're placing the paddles yourself or the, the whatever they are, the contact points yourself, it's, it, it's not like what we call in baseball a neighborhood play where if you get it close, that's good enough. You really need to know how to do this? Yeah, it should be placed correctly, but the, the public access AEDs are pretty th- um, simple to do. Mm-hmm. You open them up, the, the machine comes on, it gives you the directions. Um, so b- basically, if somebody suddenly goes down in cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. you want to approach them, you want to rub your knuckles against their chest to try to stimulate them to make certain that they truly are not responding. Mm-hmm. If they're not responding, you want to start CPR on them um, and call for someone. If someone's around there, call them to get the AED. The two things that save people's lives when they go into cardiac arrest is bystander CPR and the defibrillator. Ideally, the defibrillator is going to be done even before EMS gets there. Um, so you have your, your one in, in your kitchenette. Mm-hmm. You go there. Someone would go there to open it up, pull it down, open it up, and it's going to start telling you what to do. Mm-hmm. There's some pads that you want to place, and there are going to be pictures on, on the defibrillator of where they go. One goes on the right side of the chest, right below the collarbone, the other one goes on the left side of the chest below the breast so that there would be a line in between the two that goes right through your heart. Um, what will happen then is the, the machine will start to analyze whether or not you're in what's called the shockable rhythm. If you're in something called ventricular fib- fibrillation, it's going to tell you to go ahead and shock, and there will be a button that will say hit the, green, the orange button. You'll hit that button, and boom, hopefully that will bring the person back around. But Go ahead. Well, I guess yeah. I, my, my understanding is that uh, the procedures for CPR have changed a little bit. I mean, a lot of people were, I think, anyway, kind of reluctant for a million different reasons to yes. do the uh, the blowing into the mouth part. Right. Um, it, and that was the main reason that they changed them. People did not want to do mouth-to-mouth. So what they're doing now is they're doing something called continuous cardiac compressions. Um, they're not just doing it for bystanders, but they're actually we're doing that as paramedics now uh, if we get the person early enough. So basically, if somebody goes down... You just start, put your hands on the chest, push hard, fast, and deep, and don't worry about breathing. Because if, for instance, right now, suddenly I went into cardiac arrest, I have enough oxygen in my blood to last for a good five minutes. Mm-hmm. What I need is I need that, my, that blood pumped around. So every time you stop doing the compressions to breathe, you lower my pressure back to zero. So we want good, hard compressions. Um, so now what's happening with paramedics, where we used to go there, the first thing we'd try to do is put a tube down their windpipe, get an IV and start you know, filling them with drugs. 
What we do now is we get there, we put an oxygen mask on, and we just do continuous cardiac compressions, pausing every two minutes to see if they're in a rhythm that needs to be shocked. But again, it's bystander CPR and defibrillation that save people. All the other fancy stuff that the paramedic brings to the to the call really hasn't been shown to make a difference. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about some of the fancy stuff too as we go along here. Um, Anita, I you know when you watch uh, television shows and this happens particularly in a hospital, uh, unless the actor actually has a job on a different series and needs to leave, uh, the person lives. And I think our expectations are: wow, if I get to the hospital and they do all this stuff for me, uh, if they defibrillate me, if they you know uh, I'm going to be okay, My, I'm going to come back to life. What's the reality of this? So the reality is that not everyone survives after they have what we call sudden cardiac death or a resuscitation in the field. Um, but if you look at the statistics over the last years, because of endeavors that um, um, Peter was talking about, you know, this uh, mission lifeline and um, uh, the action getting our EMTs in the field to look at the rhythm strips and activate the cath lab so we get people in quicker, we're doing much better. And, and another huge part of why people are living longer with heart disease and not getting heart disease is they're finding out their cholesterol numbers and getting on their medication to reduce their cholesterol. They're knowing their blood pressure numbers and getting that treated, and they're stopping smoking. You know, some of these prevention things play into the numbers of how successful we've been. And so not everyone lives, but if you're that person, you want a good chance at it. And uh, we're getting a much better chance at keeping people alive and doing a better job of it because are, are, are of these efforts all, in the field. Are we using all the techniques we could? I get the feeling just based on some of the research that Betsy did that if I lived in Japan or Korea, I might be uh, something called ECMO might be used on me. If I lived in Europe, uh, hypothermia treatments might be used on me. Um, so we use hypothermia treatments at all the hospitals here, yes, right, Peter? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's new within the last maybe five years or so, but it has shown uh, um, some good success. Yeah, and ECMO has also used the ECMO. Yeah. So we do those things in the United States. You mm. know, the real differences are in our diet and our activity level if you compare us to other countries. So if you look at our our risk factors, Americans carry a load of risk factors that others don't carry, unfortunately. Mm. You know, Cynthia, you were saying during the break there was some damage to your heart because of all, all this. So talk about your life after surgery, after, uh, after the heart attack. Um, how are you living now? I mean, it's only been a few months, but how has that changed who you are and how you live? Um, well, it, it changed a lot. Um, it, it definitely changed my way of eating. Girl. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I was the junk food eater. Um, I didn't eat a lot of fast foods, but um, I did occasionally would have that. So it changed that. Um, I was also very, very active, so I haven't gotten back to that part of my life yet. I'm also a pastor. Mm -hmm. I was a pastor at church. So in um, preaching, a lot of people would say, you know, I preach hard. um, I teach hard. So that's something that I haven't been, I haven't gotten back engaged in Mm -hmm. yet. I have not done that. So um, because I've been kind of rebuilding the energy. Just uh, three weeks ago, I had the defibrillator placed in, so I've kind of been out of commission again. We so should I, be clear about this. So you have an internal defibrillator now, Yes. Right? Yeah. I just had one put in. It was about three weeks ago. So I just started cardiac rehab again today. Mm-hmm. It was my first day back. So now I'm starting to, you know, want to get back the energy, and hopefully in a couple of months or so I'll be able to engage in a lot of the activities that I was involved in prior to this. So it did change my life a lot. Um, Give people a sense when you say cardiac rehab. I mean, that really means something. That's, that's a world that you enter after the procedures that you went through. So what, what is it for you? What is cardiac rehab? Cardiac rehab is um, the facility where I go to really rebuild my strength, 
Um, they, it was awesome. I said I have to say this is one of the greatest things that could have happened for me because after you go through a procedure like this, you're afraid. I was afraid to go up and down stairs at a fast speed. I was afraid to get my heart beating. I was afraid to do anything that would cause my heart to beat fast, not realizing that it was probably good for me. But because I was so afraid, when I got to cardiac rehab, they was just so caring. They really um, talked to me, shared with me. Um, they monitor you. Um, when you first start, and so it was great to be able to get on a treadmill and walk, and, and it was like, it was okay to do this, and it wasn't going to cause me to pass out. I wasn't going to have a heart attack because my heart is beating fast. It was actually something that was good and that I needed to do. So cardiac rehab was, was excellent. It was great, and so I, I began to build energy, and um, I was increasing levels on treadmills and on the bike, lifting weights. All of this was excellent for me to do during this time. And I really saw um, a difference when I started the cardiac rehab. Um, I did open the phone lines here, so we have a question from Susan in Hartford. Hi, Susan. You're on the air. Hi. How are you? Great show. Thank you for having it. My question is around the coronary calcium scan. I'm just wondering why that isn't offered up more frequently than the EKG. Um, Through your explanation, you said the EKG is great if you're having an event at the moment. It's my understanding that the coronary calcium scan can measure the buildup of calcium plaque in your arteries. So I'm just wondering, why isn't that offered up more? It's a relatively inexpensive test. Thank you. Yeah, so that's a a great question because the coronary calcium scoring, which is just the beginning of a coronary CT scan, which has approximately the same amount of radiation exposure as a single mammogram, is a test available to allow us to know if you're at higher risk of blockages. And so it's, it's really a perfect test for the person who is younger and doesn't really know if they want to take a statin medicine because their cholesterols are maybe borderline. If there's things that they can do to reduce their risk further and they need to be assured that they don't have or they do have significant potential for blocked arteries. Now, the problem with it is if you're an older person who has lots of calcium in lots of arteries, the calcium score is not going to be very helpful. And uh, if you're if you're seeing calcium in the arteries on that score, it's just a single measure of how much calcium is there. So it doesn't tell you if any of those arteries are maybe a little calcified and only 20% blocked, so aren't going to cause you trouble for the next decade, or there's a little bit of calcium and they're 90% blocked. So it does not replace the EKG or the stress test. It's another test we can do. What's come up more recently, and it's quite interesting, and uh, I think we can use it more as a tool, is that if you happen to be a person who's on the border of whether or not you're eligible for statin medications, and if you want to know if you're that person, the uh, American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association have come up with new guidelines for when people need to take these statin medications. And they've made an app available to the general public as well as healthcare practitioners. And you can um, get this off of the American Heart website. It's the ASCVD app. And so you can put in your um, blood pressure and your basic cholesterol numbers, and it'll tell you if you're eligible for a statin. So say you're that person who's on the border and the statins gave you uh, body aches. If you were to get a calcium score in that circumstance and you really had absolutely no calcium in any of your arteries, you could make a strong case for maybe 
um, erring on the side of caution, not taking the statin and uh, just doing those other heart healthy things, which I think we all can do, which increase our exercise and eat healthy. Let me ask you this. Uh, I'll just tell you a quick story. So um, I'm 61 years old. I take a statin. Uh, I, a few years ago, I was about to up the amount of bicycling that I was doing uh, in a way that was going to put my body under more stress than I was accustomed to. So I, I saw a cardiologist. I did the stress test, uh, like Cynthia. Uh, he said it was fine. And he's a nice guy. He's retired now, so I could probably tell the story. Very nice guy. And he said, uh, you know, just, just don't tell anybody. We'll just take a quick quick peek with the ultrasound, too. Uh, and I, I took that to mean this no insurance payment would be scheduled for this, but he was just going to just take a quick peek there with the ultrasound, so, which makes me wonder. I mean, obviously, a lot of this stuff is di- dictated by what insurance will pay for, what can be covered, and stuff like that, and not that anybody's left hanging out there unnecessarily. But if you could wave a magic wand and say, you know what, um, forget about the cost of it or who's going to reimburse for it or whatever, but you know, 50% more people are going to get this particular kind of screening or this particular – is there, Anita, a particular thing you wish more people could have or could have sooner in their process? So my opinion about this is uh, maybe a little biased, but, you know, I've grown up in cardiology learning the value of evidence-based medicine and looking at outcomes. And I try to practice by our guidelines that tell us we're going to have improved outcomes. I don't want to just do a full body scan on every person who walks through the office so that I can see all the potential things they have because it leads to a little of what we call iatrogenesis or essentially you go find things that didn't need to have anything done about them and you go do something like a surgery to take something out that was unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And so in the land of evidence-based cardiology, I would think that you need to do all the things to reduce your risk primarily, which Americans are not doing. And, uh, you know, I keep going back to that, but that's where we need to start. And as practitioners, we need to make sure you know that you're Cynthia, right? You're a team player in keeping you healthy. It's not just me. You have to help do it. And then beyond that, if you don't have symptoms or changes in your EKG, I don't think you should be getting additional heart tests. Mm -hmm. I think there are reasons for doing them, and they're evidence-based, and I think you need to talk with your doctor. And you know, the new guidelines tell us for everything that we do that there needs to be a discussion between the patient and the physician about the risks and benefits of each of these tests and whether or not it's appropriate for you to do on that particular person. And that's the way I practice, and that's the way I would think that everyone should practice. Peter, let me ask you a different – we're going to have to go to a break here, but before we do, let me ask you a different version of the same question. You now have, with you as uh, a paramedic, you have a lot of stuff that used to only be in hospitals, right? You, you've, you've got equipment that uh, you, the patient used to have to travel to the hospital to get. But once again, if I could wave a magic wand at an ambulance and add anything else, anything you'd love to have? Um, well, I, I would agree with what Dr. Kelsey said is I don't want anything that hasn't been proven through evidence-based medicine. Too often things are given to – somebody comes up with a great idea, the, the manufacturing companies go out and sell it to people, and, you know, they get it. An example of this, there's these things called the Lucas. It's a, a CPR machine. Mm-hmm. And basically what it does is it does fantastic CPR purportedly. But when they've actually studied it, the, some studies have shown the outcomes are worse with it. And there was only one study. The, the best study said it's only as good as human CPR. In the meantime, everybody's buying these hard, incredibly expensive machines. But until you have stuff that's absolutely proven to work, you really shouldn't be doing things because in many cases, sometimes you're causing harm. 
All right, that's a perfect segue to the final segment we're going to do. So we'll take our break. We'll come back with more of our Heart Awareness show. Your heart is a pump the size of your fist. It beats 100,000 times a day since 2,000 gallons on its way. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Tiana Duquette and Benjamin Esty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Bill Clinton. For show pages, articles, and videos of the here and now staff eating tofu and jackfruit sandwiches, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Romeo and Juliet. And now, back to Colin. Yes, uh, although if Peter Canning had gotten there in Verona... He could have probably saved both of them. You know, one of the big problems uh, with, I mean, actually, Peter Canning could have wrecked a whole bunch of Shakespeare plays <laughs> by just showing up and reviving people uh, and getting them to the hospital. Uh, so uh, in studio with me is Dr. Anita Kelsey, cardiologist, director of women's heart program at St. Francis. Cynthia Williams, who's a resident of Hartford, recovering from open heart surgery. Peter Canning, paramedic and EMS coordinator at John Dempsey Hospital, the author of four books, including Paramedic on the Front Lines of Medicine. There's so much, I mean, first of all, time is running out here. There's so many really fast fascinating things uh, that we wanted to talk about today. We may have to do a whole other show just on emergency medicine because that's just changing so much the reconfiguration of the whole intake process. It's really, really interesting. Uh, what we want to do here in the final segment is talk a little bit about what's going on in research. And in particular, uh, and you may have seen this uh, story about this in the New York Times recently, the notion that the way that research money is apportioned is has created uh, an odd situation where an awful lot of money is spent on heart studies in particular, but re- medical research in general that nobody ever sees. That is almost the equivalent of a tree falling in the forest. Uh, joining, us, joining us to talk about that is Nihar Desai, uh, assistant professor of medicine and in the cardiovascular medicine section of the Yale School of Medicine and an investigator in the Center for Outcomes Research and Evaluation. Goes right back to what Peter and Anita were saying in the final segment. They want to know uh, about outcomes. They want to know about the medical science behind something. But uh, Nihar Desai, one of the things that we're reading now is that there's an awful lot of money spent on research that never gets on the shelves, so to speak. Tell us more about that. Why does that happen? Well, thanks, Colin. It's, uh, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, I'm delighted to share some of our uh, recent findings. And and I think the, the, the points that have been made thus far are, are incredibly important. And so I think, you know, for our clinical enterprise to work the way that we all want it to work so that patients and doctors have the best information at the point of clinical decision-making, we desperately need the research enterprise to be robust and for it to be transparent. And so all the money that's invested through all the various mechanisms, whether that be the National Institutes of Health, whether that be large pharmaceutical companies, whether that be academic medical centers themselves funding um, clinical trials, uh, we desperately need, and our system um, desperately needs, that information to then be shared with, with people. Um, you know, so both through publication of those clinical trial results, as well as the reporting of those results um, on established platforms, including clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, and, and I think it's only in that way, um, when the results of clinical trials are appropriately disseminated, do we actually uh, fulfill the ethical responsibility that we made um, to the patients that we enrolled in these studies, that we fulfill our professional values and the mission of academic centers, um, and, and ensure that patients and providers are making 
the evidence-based decisions that we all want them to. Um, and, I, and I think um, it, we're sad to report that um, too many times um, the results of these um, important trials are not shared and disseminated properly. Well, it um, it does seem, from my reading of this anyway, that one of the problems here is sometimes these, I mean, on the one hand, you want these big, huge longitudinal studies, you know, that really generate a tremendous amount of data, uh, ideally over a lot of time. But you also want people to be engaging in cutting edge studies that maybe, you know, have a smaller idea behind them or, or a more out of the box, for want of a better term, idea behind them. Uh, but one of the problems there is you might not have a lot of subjects in the study. Uh, the study, the results that you wind up with may not be big enough uh, to to withstand peer review or whatever process you have to go through to get them uh, published. So I don't know. Run your thumb along that knife's edge and, and tell us how you see that. Yeah, and 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 I, and I think that's a fair point to say. You know, hey, um, you know, there are uh, a sequence of events that have to go from you know the the design and, and completion of a study to then it's uh, the curation of the data to its submission to a peer-reviewed uh, publication and then for the editorial process to kind of, you know, be completed. Um, and, and again, like you, I think, you know, very nicely uh, articulate, there's a series of things that kind of have to happen for that um, to be achieved. And, and, you know, we certainly understand that that's a, um, that that's a process, you know, it's, uh, it's got several steps to it, but I think again, um, you know, we, we should be able to ensure that experiments that are done, um, particularly with human subjects, um, that those the data from those experiments are not sequestered and hidden, um, but rather that they are shared and disseminated through the various channels that we have. Now, um, of course, you know, publication of those results and, and peer review and, and the rigor that that brings is vitally important. But I would also sort of mention that, you know, there's another vehicle, another platform through which, you know, results can be shared and disseminated. And that's simply by reporting them on a platform like clinicaltrials.gov. That's one of the essential missions of clinicaltrials.gov, which is now, you know, an endeavor of the National Library of Medicine um, to make sure that every trial that's done, that's started, um, is posted on this uh, public website and that when it's completed, that the results of that experiment are then posted on that website as well. And so, you know, what we found, you know, we looked at over 4,000 uh, clinical trials from 2007 to 2010 that were led by academic medical centers. And the results that we found were, were staggering. We found that less than 40% were disseminated within two years of study completion. So either publication or results reporting. And I think the corollary to that is that there's threefold variation amongst academic medical centers. So on the low end, we saw that, you know, about 15 percent uh, were reporting. And on the upper end, we saw that about 55 percent um, of studies were reported at other academic medical centers. So there's not only poor performance, but there's very wide variation. Um, and so, you know, our, our aim in doing this work was not just to highlight a problem, but but I think to to have this as a call to action to say, you know, there are blind spots in the clinical research enterprise and academic medical centers, uh, public funders, pharmaceutical companies all have to be um, sort of held to account uh, when they're the ones that are primarily conducting uh, these clinical trials. 
You know, I want to just throw this. We're running out of time, and this is like a one-hour conversation, not a, a ten-minute one, unfortunately. But um, uh, Anita, maybe um, you know, I, I, so much of what you've said on the show here today has less to do with what doctors know and more to do with what patients know and how patients can change their behaviors, change what they do, change what they eat, uh, take control of their own lives. But you know, the kinds of stuff that the the way that research gets to patients isn't always through doctors, and most of us don't have a subscription to the Journal of the American Medical Association. So in my lifetime, just reading the New York Times science section, I probably had like six reversals on eggs. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Eggs are okay. No, don't eat eggs. You know, and I assume this is all just from research that gets done and gets flopped around. I, I guess one question I would have is, if, if all the research gets out, um, will I be more confused than ever? I, th- I think that uh, you can have access to this information, and I think it can help you. But in the end, when you're talking about your own health, and the course that you're going to take for your life, you have to have a conversation with your physician. And you have to rely a little on them to weed through all of these results and know which ones are appropriate for you and which ones you should be paying attention to. And I have many patients who are very well educated who read about studies primarily and come to me and ask about it. Or they're reading the lay literature, which might have biases one way or the other, and I can corroborate or dispute whatever they've read based on the results of clinical trials. And so I I think that that discussion between you and your physician has been a big focus of our recommendations and the guidelines, and it's certainly what we need to be doing both as a patient ourselves and uh, as a physician or healthcare provider. All right. I think I don't dare ask another question because we're almost out of time here. Um, I first of all want to say to uh, Cynthia, you look great. I I hope you're feeling good right now. I am. Yeah, you look like, you look like a very healthy person. So uh, take good care of yourself, and and good luck with with uh, cardiac rehab and post cardiac rehab, and with the rest of your life. Peter Canning, I hope you're the guy who shows up. Uh, I got, I'm going to like you know, write eighty much bigger so that you can see. But I Great. I hope you're the guy who shows up the day that I need you. And Anita Thank Kelsey, you. thanks so much for joining us with your tremendous amount of knowledge. Uh, Nihard Desai, I wish we had more time for this. This is a longer conversation and one that fits in with a whole other set of concerns that that we have here on the show about about our access to scientific research. Maybe we can get you back on a day when we're talking about that. Sorry to Bill from New, Mil- New Milford. Sorry to get you on. He's a triathlete who almost died of cardiac arrest. Now has uh, a defibrillator in his chest, not unlike Cynthia. Uh, all right. Don't, you tra- don't be a triathlete. All right. Just get some normal exercise. <laughs> it's, it's like you're trying to hurt yourself or something. All right. Anyway, that's all. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolf. Greg, to prevent a heart attack, take one baby aspirin every day. Okay, no problem. Yep, take it out for a jog, to the gym, definitely take it for a bike ride. Oh, and if you dissolve it on your tongue, it ruins the taste of pizza, so that should help. You're listening to WMPR.